to everyone listening in, my deepest apologies. Um, uh, Zoom has let us down. Um, uh, maybe they forgot to pay the bill um, and quite possibly maybe their infrastructure is under the weather, uh, which is a unique segue into what we're going to be talking about today. Um, thank you for everyone who's joined us online. Uh, my name's Damon Purcell. I'm the COO of um, Australian Fund Monitors. Um, today, we're hoping uh, that the presentation will go, well, I don't think it'll probably go for 45 minutes given the issues that we've had thus far, but um, uh, we're going to be talking about infrastructure funds and particularly the opportunities and uh, and some of the risks within that particular sector. I'm joined today by um, uh, three incredibly experienced uh, infrastructure fund managers, uh, Sarah Shaw, um, who's the Global Portfolio Manager and CEO at 4D Infrastructure, Matt Lawback, who's a partner at Atlas Infrastructure, and Ben McVicker, who's the Portfolio Manager and Sector Head for Infrastructure and Industrials at the Magellan Financial Group. Uh, welcome all of you and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. For all of the people online, there is the ability to ask questions as we go along through today. You can do that via a Q&A panel at the bottom. Um, so please feel free to do that as we go along. We'll, um, uh, I'll add some of the questions in or we'll try and get to them at the end. Um, what I might do, uh, if, if I could, I might start uh, with you, Sarah, and just um, uh, ask you, just give me a little bit of your background and um, the sort of fund that you manage. Uh, sure. Uh, look, I have over 30 years in the finance industries and and since 2005, it's been in the listed infrastructure space uh, when listed infrastructure was just being discovered as it's or becoming into its own as its own asset class. I run a global listed infrastructure fund. Uh, it is truly global. It's actively managed across both the developed and the emerging world. Uh, it has been going since uh, 2016, so we've got over a, sort of an eight-year track record now. And uh, look, it, it's, it's really trying to capitalise on the best opportunities globally within the listed infrastructure space, uh, considering where we are sitting in the, the current economic or market cycle. Excellent. Um, Matt um, Lawback from Atlas Infrastructure, what about you? Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, so Atlas Infrastructure was formed or started investing, we were a, a year behind, Sarah. We, we commenced investing in, in 2017. We manage about $6.5 billion um, predominantly in our flagship strategy, which we refer to as the global strategy, where um, a, a team of infrastructure specialists, we've got offices in Sydney and London, and we run a relatively high conviction, concentrated portfolio targeting real returns of 5% above inflation. And finally, uh, Ben uh, McVicker from Magellan. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I'm one of the portfolio managers um, at, at Magellan and the infrastructure um, team and capability that we have. Um, the strategies that we run in infrastructure have been around, the, the first one was in mid-2007, uh, invested in a, um, a diversified portfolio of infrastructure assets uh, globally, probably SKU's um, developed market. Um, and we have these days about 16 billion in Aussie dollars um, invested against the strategies. And it's split um, kind of between a couple of infrastructure strategies that we have a sort of a call it a 30 stock um, portfolio as well as an 80 to 90 stock uh, portfolio. Excellent. Sarah, I might start with you. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about the the emerging investment opportunities. All three of you have uh, obviously significant experience um, globally within this particular sector. Um, Where are you starting to see some of the emerging opportunities in the infrastructure market? What sectors or regions are showing that sort of promise for, for attractive returns? Sure. Uh, the way I think about infrastructure uh, is, is is what's well known about the asset class is that it offers a really attractive combination of defensive characteristics and, and earnings resilience. Um, but it also actually allows investors to capitalise on some of the, the, the best and uh, longest duration growth thematics of the next 20 or 30 years, which I believe continue to emerge, continue to grow and con- continue to uh, expand. Uh, so really what I wanted to do just in, in answering your question is just not, not focusing on the defensiveness or individual sectors or regions, but really focusing on those growth dynamics uh, within the infrastructure space uh, that I don't think are, are fully appreciated by the market as yet. So we see four to five of these big thematics um, that are going to underpin strong fundamental growth across infrastructure for decades and decades to come. The first is what we call developed market replacement spend. So our infrastructure here is old, it's inefficient, uh, and a failure to upgrade it um, is really going to cause significant social and economic consequences. So developed market replacement spend is key to a long-term uh, economic prosperity of, of the developed world. The second one, which I think continues to emerge, uh, is global population growth. Um, but it's with significantly changing demographics. So we have the West is getting older, but much of the East is getting younger. And both dynamics require increased infrastructure investment if we're going to support those population uh, or that population evolution. The third and one I'm particularly excited about, and I think it just continues to gain in traction, is the emergence of the middle class in developing economies. Uh, It offers a huge opportunity with infrastructure, both a driver as well as a first beneficiary of improved living standards. If you think about as your wealth evolves, how do you you spend that money? It could be on power, it could be on indoor plumbing, it could be on, on a car. These things all require huge investment in infrastructure. The fourth one, which I'm sure we've heard so much about, but just continues to grow in magnitude on a daily basis, is the energy transition that is currently underway. Uh, This is a multi-decade investment opportunity uh, as every country across the developed and the emerging world uh, moves towards a cleaner environment. And I think what highlighted from last year's crisis is that we need to move towards that cleaner environment in a socially responsible way. So that just increases the the, the need for even further investment in, in, in infrastructure. And the five, fifth or fifth emerging theme that I kind of see and is, is really gaining traction now is the rise of technology and all the associated nuances um, of its use and impacts on, on infrastructure needs, whether it's uh, in improving efficiency, if it's whether it's supporting driverless vehicles, whether it's actually just uh, the digital needs that we all have as day-to-day life and, and, and the infrastructure needed to support that. So I think these are the thematics that underpin long-term strong infrastructure growth. Uh, we're very excited about them. Uh, we continue to uh, be conscious of the economic backdrop and we are positioning for current in-country cyclicals like an overweight to inflation at the moment. But these long-term fundamentals underpin a investment in infrastructure throughout the cycles, uh, whether it's inflationary, whether we've got interest rates turning, whether we go into the deepest, darkest depression, uh, infrastructure fundamentals continue to support strong growth for, for, for decades and decades to come. 
Sarah, I'd like to actually unpack a couple of those things as we go along, particularly um, the role that, um, you know, the energy and also um, technology plays. Um, Matt, if I could bring you in in this situation, um, Sarah mentioned um, uh, one of the points regarding um, uh, essentially re-engineering the infrastructure, the ageing infrastructure. Um, do you also see that uh, as, a, as a potential emerging market? And if so, where does the US then stand on that? They've got hell of a lot of infrastructure that's uh, that's starting to fall down and is that you know a potential risk as well sure so there's a, there's a couple of pieces there in terms of, of of that thematic around replacement uh capex or, or rejuvenation of, of infrastructure uh absolutely that that's that's one of the themes we we, we see play out in, in terms of, of how that, um, I, I suppose, hits the road in, in terms of, of um, converting to an attractive return, uh, that, that can obviously vary. So for uh, regulated um, infrastructure companies where, where the regulators are actively supporting uh, growth capex to, to rejuvenate assets or to expand assets, that, that, that's, that's almost the, the, the perfect sort of dynamic where um, where, where you're you're allowed to earn a return on that uh, regu regulated, regulated approved capex. Um, so, so yes, we, we definitely agree with that, and and I think part of the extension of that is is understanding um, the ability of companies to earn a return on that that rejuvenation or or, or replacement capex. Uh, the, the US is always an interesting one, um, Chris. I, I think there are. There's a number of different dynamics flowing through that market. I think a lot of the the infrastructure assets that that we as users see when we travel through the US, whether that's airports or toll roads, a lot of those assets are still state or government owned assets. Um, so so um, you know, typically those types of assets aren't available for for investment. Although there are there are some exceptions to that. Um, in the utility space, which is where, where where those assets absolutely are available very widely for investment, uh, we, we are seeing a, a lot of interesting dynamics flow through there in terms of that that um, push to net um, to net net zero. So uh, regulators incentivising utilities to to make electric networks more resilient, uh, to support the the evolution or the growth of the the electric vehicle market, to connect to new renewable generation assets. They're all thematics that uh, that flow through to cash flow assumptions and make those types of assets more attractive. Um, ben, I'll throw to you um, if we then um, sort of go that sort of one step further from there and um, talking about uh, you know the the east um, the, being younger, um, a greater utilization of technology, all the sorts of themes that that play through with that. Um, are you seeing um, a, a greater opportunity in some of those parts of the market, or is it still um, a broad opportunity set across the globe, dependent on um, the you know the pure fundamentals of the infrastructure investment? Yeah, I'd say it's an interesting question. Um, so I'd say when we look at the world, um, it's always about risk and return when we think about um, investment across infrastructure. Um, what you tend to find in um, many jurisdictions, particularly for us in some of the um, developing markets, is 
we pay a lot of attention to um, how the, the rule of law and um, property right enforcement actually looks. Um, so for us, when we cut across the globe, what we tend to find is that the, probably the, the, the opportunities that we find most appealing right now are those assets that really get exposure to that growth in the, uh, the, the wealth per capita in the, you know, the population, the growing middle class dynamics. You know, for, for example, if you think about um, dual market uh, airports, one of the attractive thematics there over recent years has really been about that growth um, story that comes out and you get that coming through uh, really into, um, you know, increased tourism, increased spend rates in airports. And what is, and I think, I think most people are sort of well aware of these sort of stats these days, but, you know, what you typically find is that the um, Chinese passengers typically will spend multiples uh, of what you find being spent by um, local travellers or um, developed market travellers. So you tend to find there's ways you can gain exposure to that through a pretty low risk uh, vector. Where you do find some interesting thematics, though, I'll just call out an example here. And there's always other pieces that come with this, but just in that terms of that thematic, I've got to stay on that um, lane. And um, when you look at places that typically have had um, high bus penetration and are still um, adopting um, air travel. And an example that comes to my mind here is probably um, Mexico, where you've had a, a sort of a share of bus travel around the country that's um, been significant compared to, to others. And you know, for a while, what we're certain, certainly expecting in that market is that you continue to see adoption um, of air travel as wealth per capita and income per capita grows. But even more so than that, I think it's also the social norms. You know, people get used to seeing what your neighbours are doing to travel, and that allows that adoption curve to pick up. Um, and we've seen things like that play out uh, similarly in the past. Um, so there's different ways you can play that um, uh, thematic that we're discussing here. Um, and generally, from our point of view, it's just finding the you know the low risk access point into that. Matt um, Lawback from um, Atlas. Um, let's talk a little bit about risk, um, and in particular, um, you know some of the risks involved in infrastructure projects. Um, one that sort of comes to mind, I guess, that um, a lot of people think about is, um, is there a, a period or a, a time where the you get the law of diminishing returns with some of these? And, and how hard is it to know when to get out of some of the investments that you're in when they start to get to that, uh, that situation where um, the costs might overrun the, the returns that they're starting to make? Yeah, I think that's a it's a pertinent question. I mean, when when we look at infrastructure as an asset class, generally generally the returns are, are capped by by regulation or, or by long term contracts. So we spend a huge amount of time, given that, then focusing on on the, the risks of these infrastructure companies or, or, or projects. And I suppose trying to understand what could go wrong or, or where investors could lose money. From, from the analysis that we've done, typically the primary risk for investors in infrastructure is around valuation risk. So if you're, you're investing in an asset that is overvalued, the risk of permanent loss of capital is real and, and your, your sort of stress scenarios and, and performance under different uh, macro or, or asset-specific risk scenarios is magnified. I think more broadly then than that valuation risk, if you go beyond that and look at look through the infrastructure asset class, all, all infrastructure companies, whether it's a regulated utility, 
an airport, a toll road, a renewable business, they all behave very differently under different macroeconomic scenarios. So, so if you take a recession scenario or a stagflation scenario, all of these types of companies will behave very differently. I think it's our job as portfolio managers to ensure that when we construct a portfolio, that the portfolio will return you know, benchmark returns and, and, and will protect investors' money under any of those plausible macroeconomic scenarios. So, you know, if, if you're asking us what, what's the best way of mitigating or safeguarding that capital, my response would be that, that as a, a portfolio manager, we need to have an understanding of how a portfolio will return or behave under a range of plausible macroeconomic scenarios, whether that's you know, a given base case forecast, a recession scenario, a stagflation scenario, and really just ensuring that the portfolio is not overly exposed to any particular macro factor risk. Sarah, um, uh, I think Matt brings a, an interesting point there. When you're looking at putting your portfolio uh, together, um, I, what sort of things are you looking at when it comes to, um, you know, uh, inflationary um, hedges or, um, you know, interest rate um, changes, those sorts of things? Are you making reasonably active decisions along the way in that or uh, is it more of a purely I understand the asset, this is the asset that I want to hold and, and it's a long-term investment? Look, I think it's the absolute beauty of infrastructure as an asset class is that even though the, the whole asset class can provide you those nice, stable, defensive earning streams which are underpinned by contract or regulation, uh, there is actual economic diversity within the asset class and, and that is a really, really key uh, to, to the asset class because if you do have active portfolio management, as, as Matt alluded to, then you can position for not only those long-term structural thematics that we've just discussed, but also for the short-term cyclical events, both in-country and globally. So I think what we're also seeing around the world at the moment is we have very divergent economic outlooks in various parts of the world. We have uh, inflation in the developed world. We have um, you know, deflation in other parts of the world. We have inflation that has turned and, and interest rates are shifting in some others. And, and we really want to capitalise on all of that. So uh, for us, we're very active in that. We, we Part of our philosophy is positioning a defensive asset class for all points of the economic or macro cycle. And for us, that is, uh, you know, compounding and going overweight the inflationary environment when when it's uh, when it's in play. But at the same time, uh, if we if we see inflation uh, turn and central banks overshoots, and all of a sudden we're sitting into a recessionary environment, then uh, there's an interest rate start coming back again. There's ways to position to to capitalize on that in uh, utilities that give you a return independent of demand or volumes, and actually benefit from the whole bond proxy trade. Uh, but there's also parts of the the infrastructure university that are so far from a bond proxy that they could be, you know, could be a tech stock. To be honest, they compound inflation. They do they they capture the growth. They're they're really strong in 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 those sort of environments. So that is the beauty of infrastructure. You can position for not only the long term thematics, but you can capitalize on the short term economics and really add alpha and and, and compound um, the economic environments into long term returns. Well, I think that's a good segue when we talk about, um, you know, some of those thematics into um, 
uh, ESG factors and and how that plays out in investment strategies within infrastructure. Um, ben McVigar from uh, Magellan, I'll, I'll ask you, um, uh, how do you address environmental, social and, and governance factors in, in when you're putting a portfolio together? Um, and what sort of role does, does sustainability play in, in the sorts of uh, investments you're making? Um, that is a, an interesting question. So when you think about the impacts of ESG, now ESG obviously is um, a far more sort of prevalent framework for thinking about risks um, really uh, under those banners today. But when we think about infrastructure, um, uh, the stat that comes to my mind here is that about a quarter of estimated global emissions comes from the heating and electric sector uh, alone. And so that means that, you know, we've been sort of focused on the impacts of the shift to, say, renewable energy, distributed energy, um, uh, storage. All of that's been in our wheelhouse for, for a while. And in fact, I recall probably um, uh, a decade ago, uh, the conversation about um, distributed energy, um, people having batteries. And, you know, Australia has exceptionally high penetration um, of rooftop uh, solar. Um, but people expect you to have rooftop solar, you have a battery, therefore you disconnect from the grid. So this, um, what I'm sort of getting at here is this risk factor that people think about around um, the energy transition and how this plays out. This is something that we've been focused on uh, for a while. So the short answer is yes, it has a very significant impact in terms of how we think. Um, where it probably plays out most interestingly for us is that when we look at the portfolio and did some analysis, what we found was that within the portfolio, you've got an 80-20 rule. And what we found was that 20% of the portfolio accounted for 80% of the emissions of the portfolio. Um, and when we zoomed in on that, what we found is that those are utilities. And when you zoom in further, they're North American utilities. Um, what that, Why that is, is because these companies typically operate um, uh, thermal power stations, so gas, legacy coal-fired power stations, and they're quite emissions uh, intensive, as you might imagine. Uh, so what's kind of interesting here is the environmental aspect and the emissions intensity sits in these regulated utilities businesses. These are typically very low risk. So what was kind of interesting about this analysis, though, is that when we looked at the list of companies that are accounting for the largest emissions, is that these companies, from our perspective, actually have the greatest opportunity um, when you think about an energy transition. So these regulated electric um, businesses in North America, they are the ones who are going to be building out the, the networks, building out uh, many of the renewable assets and, and catering to the, the, in the um, infrastructure to build out electric vehicles. So all of that's going to create a big opportunity uh, for those uh, businesses. Um, so we see opportunity there, but certainly, you know, we, we started this analysis and the risk. Now, what's interesting is that when you actually think about the risk that you face here. What we actually see is that sometimes it's the assets with the lowest emissions um, that probably have the, the biggest risk factors. If you think about a world that moves towards, say, electric um, transportation, it's going to weigh pretty heavily on a bunch of oil pipelines in the future. Um, we don't think that's going to happen um, for for a while. It's going to be a multi-decade um, shift, um, but it certainly will weigh on the very long-term earnings of things like oil uh, pipelines. But funnily enough, those assets typically have the lowest emissions intensity today um, because the emissions are all downstream in the cars that actually use uh, the oil and the trucks that use the uh, the, the oil. Um, so environmental is probably the biggest vector that we see this playing out. And in fact, we see it in other places too. You know, we've seen um, in uh, California, you've seen increase in physical uh, risk. We've had increasing prevalence, of, or seeming to be an increasing prevalence of wildfires. 
um, and that's impacted some of the utilities there now for specific reasons, largely specific reasons to California, the way regulation works there, it makes those investments quite um, risky from our perspective. Um, so environmental, you know, we do think about a lot. It's probably the biggest vector on ESG that we really think about. Under the other two, social and governance, the two things that come to my mind when we think about uh, investment um, uh, risk management. Under social, this is really social license risk. Um, by social license, I mean you're standing with the communities and the, the governments in, in which you operate. And so what we tend to find is that if you've got it, you're a utility and you keep increasing your electric um, utility rates and you upset the community, that's going to upset the regulators and put pressure on you and you're going to break down the relationship with the, the regulators. So we want to make sure companies are managing that social risk uh, well. Um, and under governance, obviously, making sure a company is well governed and, and run well for shareholders is, is critical. And the biggest issue we see here is, is probably the fact that the types of assets that, that all of us uh, invest in tend to generate pretty strong cash flow. And when you have a management team that sits atop a business generating strong cash flow, you want to be pretty confident that that management uh, team are going to spend that cash well in the interest of shareholders. And so making sure that the, you know, the agency risk, if you want to call it that, um, is well managed is important. And so that's probably the key thing we think about there. But so ESG, absolutely, it's just the risks are going to um, come out in different ways in, in infrastructure. And the emphasis will be, um, I think, different to other sectors in infrastructure as to what we focus on. Sarah, um, I might go to you for this one. Um, geopolitical change, um, you know, is is obviously important in all investment markets. Um, is it more so an issue for some of these long-run infrastructure holdings? Uh, and is that something that, you know, you've got to manage for? Look, absolutely. I think uh, infrastructure assets are, are very long-dated projects. Uh, they have generally have very high upfront capital cost. And then over time, you generate your return. You've got lower cost involved, you, you know, the scale advantages, and you make your money towards uh, over the life of the assets. So given that upfront nature of the investment obligation, then, uh, you know, geopolitical concerns, the strength of regulation, contracts, they really underpin your future returns. So it's absolutely critical to making an investment decision. So for us, absolutely, uh, we look at the geopolitical scenario, we look at the strength of regulatory models, we look at contract structures as part of our stock analysis. We do a lot of sensitivity analysis around those shifts. But interestingly, before we even get to that stage, uh, we do a country risk assessment. You know, countries do have real risk, uh, and that includes the governance of the country and uh, very, very importantly from our standpoint uh, in, in the infrastructure space, is the strength of its judicial system. So we think this is one key area that must be really uh, considered uh, before we even look at assets within any particular country. That may be a little bit more relevant for us because we do invest directly in the emerging world. And, and as Ben mentioned, risk return must be must be managed. So for us, the 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 the, the strength of the judicial system, um, supporting the, the support for the sanctity of the contract or regulation that underpin our long term investment is is just key. Uh, so that assessment, you know, we've ruled out countries of investment based on a weak judicial system. We've actually downgraded countries within our country risk assessment based on a, a, an attempt to change regulatory models or attempt to change the infrastructure outlook. And I think a great example which surprises a few people is that we downgraded the UK 
uh, during the Jeremy Corbyn election campaign as he wanted to nationalise the infrastructure assets. Now, from the judicial strength of, of, of the UK, it was fine. So we didn't have a real problem there. But when those uh, those assets were put into private hands, it wasn't envisaged that anyone in the future would want to take them back. So the yeah. regulation, the contract, the structure of those environment had just not envisaged a, a nationalisation scenario. So it was a very, very unclear scenario. So for us, it's really not only looking at um, the contract, the regulation, every potential eventuality, but then the strength of that judicial system to, uh, you know, to, to support that contract and regulation for the life of the asset and to ensure I get the return profile that I've been promised with my upfront investment. Um, Matt, um, if we just change tack a little bit um, and talk a bit about um, the role that technology is playing for for infrastructure. Now, um, obviously, there's the ability to own um, uh, assets that are directly related to um, uh, the Internet of Things and a whole range of different, um, uh, those sorts of different things. But um, what do you, what role do you think digitization, that sort of smart infrastructure and renewable energy is going to play out towards the future for, uh, for infrastructure? Yeah, Damon, it's an interesting one because it, in some ways, it's it's almost the new infrastructure, and, and there's a, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of characteristics which make it very similar to the old legacy infrastructure. Um, and, and there's some things that that don't. The, the, the whole process of digitization and shift to smart infrastructure <clears throat> um, has, has obviously bred a, a new sub subsector of infrastructure in 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 assets like data centers. Um, telco towers, satellites and the like, um, and on the energy side, renewable generation businesses. I, I think there's, it's important in, in looking at those types of assets to, to, to take the same lens that, um, that you take in assessing all other infrastructure companies. So, so that's looking at things like their monopolistic um, position in the market, the, the strength of the underlying contracts or the um, or, or the nature of the, the overarching regulation and, and forming a view around the level of attractiveness there. Um, there's no doubt it's a high growth market in, in assets like, like data centres and the like. Uh, but what we're finding specifically in data centres is that um, a small number of them would um, we, we would uh, define as infrastructure um, they're the types of data centres that have very long-term contracts with the um, with the Metas and the Alphabets of the world or the Amazons. Uh, but there's a large number of those those data centres that uh, that we wouldn't define as, as infrastructure. I think the other the other overlay which which we need to grapple with in terms of that uh, that newer generation infrastructure subsector is around the technology cycle. So. If you look at a, a, a seaport or a, or a water pipeline, th th there's no real plausible way of of, um, of replacing those, those types of assets. They've been around for thousands of years and, and they'll be around for a lot longer. When, when we look at data centres or satellites or, or telco towers, I suppose the one issue that we, uh, we constantly grapple there with is what's the length of the technology cycle? And how long a duration of these assets, um, or, you know, how long is the duration of these assets and, and how long will it take us to earn a return on that capital? Um, so, it, you know, it's definitely a very exciting space and, and it's an area that we cover and, and look at, but, but it, it also comes with 
a number of those um, th th those sort of um, difficulties or, or, or differences, I suppose, in terms of how we need to look at them relative to, to legacy infrastructure sectors. Um, ben McVicker, um, a, a question for you then on, on a similar vein. Um, if we're looking at um, some of the um, uh, digitisation, smart infrastructure, renewable energy, um, do you also have to fold in um, a, a political, um, if you like, uh, macro on top of that? Um, there's clearly governments around the world who are pushing very hard to move forward in some of these areas and clearly lots of governments around the world who aren't. Uh, is that something that you have to marry up um, when you're looking at uh, at some of this um, more highly technical um, infrastructure? Yeah, so maybe if we, um, when we sort of think about this and sort of how I think about this is if you put the sort of digital technology in one um uh, tranche, and then you put the sort of utility um, energy transition renewables in another tranche. So I think these sort of end drivers tend to be a little bit uh, different in nature. Um, and so if I sort of focus on the renewables, which is obviously a um, there's a big push from a sort of a regulatory uh, perspective that does drive a lot of that. And certainly one of our frameworks that we use to think about this is um, is a technology standalone cost uh, competitive? Um, is it a good substitute? Um, and this is where things like electric heating versus gas heating, electric heating has some great characteristics, but it is difficult to encourage people to use that over gas uh, heating. And then another uh, uh, lens here is, is it um, subsidised or supported by a government? Now, very typically, you can get by with just a couple of those. So you can be um, a viable technology that's not cost competitive, but have government uh, support. And what we have found in the past in, in prior decades is, um, places like uh, Germany have been pretty heavy supporters of things like uh, solar power and helped that really develop and push down the cost curve. Um, but then what is kind of interesting now when we think about renewables is that um, renewable energy uh, in many regions around the world, um, particularly in sunny and windy regions, is standalone cost competitive. So it makes economic sense for a lot of these operators to adopt uh, this technology. Um, so what's been kind of interesting, even under the Trump administration, where you didn't exactly have big support for a, a net zero agenda, um, you still saw a pretty strong adoption by the companies and you saw a lot of uh, renewable standards being put in by state uh, governments uh, in the US. Uh, so it does matter, um, but the, the the sort of cost and the pure economics matters um, uh, as well. Um, but what we do find as well is I think about another emerging technology in this space that's obviously getting a lot of... Um, financial support is really around the development of um, hydrogen, um, which when we think about, um, I mentioned before, oil pipelines, which, you know, obviously the use of oil, a significant portion of the barrel goes towards um, transportation and electric vehicles, obviously that oil pipeline, you're not going to have the same um, uh, use of. However, it's going to be interesting in hydrogen because what you're seeing is potentially some of the existing gas infrastructure being repurposed towards hydrogen uh, networks. And you're seeing a significant project in Europe, and Europe's obviously um, uh, pretty keen to, to push forward on this. And historically, this was about emissions. But if you think about the policy agenda going forward after the invasion of uh, Ukraine, obviously um, self-sufficiency and reliability of energy supply is also really important as well. So there's actually it's a complex um, uh, beast. But absolutely, the policy backdrop matters in terms of how companies respond and, and where the opportunities are. 
I like that's a, I think that's a really salient point, um, uh, particularly when I look at one of the questions that's come through from uh, one of our attendees, and that's um, the repurpose of some of the assets. I mean, you know, oil pipelines, as an example, as the transition goes to renewables, um, are they can that sort of thing be repurposed? And is there other things in the market in the in the in the broad marketplace that could be repurposed to something as we transition more towards renewables? Yeah, so it's when you think about the oil pipelines, um, oil um, in terms of its its use, as I said, that sort of falls probably predominantly towards transportation. Um, the oil pipelines, then you're still going to have a portion of that that's used in many petrochemical uh, industries. Maybe technology in the future changes that, but that's sort of getting a bit far down the the, the pipe. Um, and so potentially not so much there. In the gas pipelines, um, I think there's potentially a repurposing story. Um, our understanding, and for full disclosure, I'm not an engineer, um, but we just sort of learned this through our discussions with experts in this space, um, that the gas pipelines can be um, used for hydrogen as a transportation as as a um, as a fuel that goes through them. However, you do actually typically have to either use a the right grade steel to basically stop the um, the pipeline corroding and degrading, uh, or you just need to use some kind of um, coating to kind of get around that. But what's going to kind of be interesting there is that we focus on the pipelines. But often when we see some analysis from a lot of these companies, a lot of them are pointing to their pipeline infrastructure being pretty ready for hydrogen uh, by as a percentage. Um, but where you're going to find is actually a bigger issue is obviously the appliances. If you want to start to put up the percentage of hydrogen in the gas stream, a lot of the household appliances are not equipped for that. And that's where things get harder when you start trying to push costs onto consumers to adopt uh, technology uh, like that. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, you know, we someone mentioned earlier the, the uh the situation of energy suppliers pushing that on which is something we're obviously grappling with here in Australia um Sarah I might throw to you uh, we've we're just about out of time any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to add uh, I think uh, look, we've covered covered a lot. I think uh, infrastructure is a fantastic asset class. I think it should be part of every portfolio and every market. Clearly, I'm going to say that, um, but it does offer uh, an incredible com- uh, combination of uh, defensive characteristics, which we've discussed today. You know, inflation hedges, uh, long term visible and resilient earnings, but it it, cre- it it is exposed to some of the the most exciting growth thematics uh, for the next 20, 30 years, which many of which we've we've talked about today. And you have the ability to capture the economic cycles with that active management that we discussed. Uh, and yes, it's it, nothing as, as an equity, nothing as an asset is without risk. Uh, but if you go with the specialist um, managers of, of this asset class, then they are doing uh, spending their days. I think assessing those risks, uh, assessing the sustainability of every asset company, future repurposing, whatever it might be, um, the opportunity set that they can uh, they can can uh, gain exposure to, and I'm sure all of us here today are, are trying to offer our investors, uh, you know, the, the the best exposure to strong management team, uh, defined sustainability policy, strong balance sheets, and who can capitalise on the on the much needed investment in in what is a growing and, and very exciting asset class. So, um, I didn't wake up at the age of 18 deciding to become an infrastructure fund manager. Um, somehow made it here, and um, I love the space. I think it's a, a really dynamic one, and um, I couldn't imagine um, a, a world without uh, infrastructure and its growth going forward. Matt Lawback, um, 
from your point of view, anything to add? Damon, probably just the last one for me, I think just from a global perspective, I think sitting in Australia, it's um, it, it, it's sort of easy to feel that, that infra- listed infrastructure as an asset class is a is a dying breed with the privatisations of Sydney Airport, Spark, Osnet, uh, so, so, you know, some of the best infrastructure companies globally have been taken taken private here. Uh, but, but I would just highlight that, that globally, in terms of the size of the universe, we've seen the universe size stay roughly flat. So for all of the, the privatisations we've seen here in Australia and, and a number offshore, that, that's, been, that's been generally offset by, by new IPOs or, or, or new, new companies growing to a sufficient size to be included in our universe. So I think the evolution of the market for Australian investors, in some ways, we're being forced to invest offshore now. And I suppose to, to Sarah's point there, I, I would just echo that um, that, that message that, that there's a, a great role there for active infrastructure specialists to to help investors navigate that space. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, um, I mean, when we compare it to many of the other, what you would term broad sectors in the market, it's a relatively new one for a lot of um, Australian investors, um, you know, really only over the last uh, 30 or 40 years has it, you know, really developed into something that should be in portfolios or um, has a place in portfolios for Australians. Um, ben McVicker, anything from you to finish off? Uh, yeah, no, I've appreciated the comments from Sarah and Matt. The, um, maybe the only thing I can just add to round out the discussion is I think a lot of investors look at infrastructure um, defensively, which uh, as a defensive asset, which I think is correct. It's, you know, an inflation protected defensive asset with lower economic sensitivity. But maybe the thing that's less broadly well appreciated is that um, infrastructure tends to have pretty nice structural growth characteristics that tie into it as well. Uh, you know, we've talked today a bit about things like the, you know, the growth of the energy transition and renewable energy and the opportunity that creates for growth in the utilities um, businesses. Um, you know, we've touched on things like the, the the airport space and the opportunity for continued growth with growing wealth um, globally. So all of these thematics um, really provide this sort of multi-decade growth um, story. So it's, uh, from my perspective, I think, you know, infrastructure offers a really nice combination of, you know, defensive, inflation protected, but also, um, uh, you know, long-term growth opportunity uh, as well. Thank you very much, uh, each of you. Um, We've run out of time. We're right on five o'clock or just a minute two. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Sarah Shaw, uh, Matt Lawback and Ben McVicker. Um, For everyone who's attended today, my deepest and sincerest apologies for the the snafu that we've had with, uh, with Zoom. Uh, we will be releasing this as a as an audio. Uh, if you do want a copy of it, it will be sent out to to everyone who's attended. Uh, once again, thank you to Sarah, Matt, and Ben, and thank you for everyone for attending. And uh, I hope you have a fantastic afternoon. <laughs>